certainly the impacts of automation differ at the intersection of things like race, gender, and geography. What we know, for example, is that young African-American men are at the greatest risk of being displaced from automation. The important thing to realize is that the stakes for the economy are huge. Hey, Bruno. Happy New Year. Hey, Erin. Happy New Year to you. Did you make any resolutions? Yes, I'm going to finish writing this memoir I've been working on for the last few years. It's time, and this is my year. I can feel it. How about you? <laughs> Exciting. I'm going to take a Python class and learn to code. All this talk of learning agility and how technology is changing the job market have inspired me to expand my repertoire. Well, I'm glad it's inspired you. Because for our first episode of 2020, we're going to take a closer look at one specific way automation is changing the workforce. Yes. And the impacts of that change converge with other themes we've covered throughout this podcast. Things like diversity, structural inequality, and how they affect the talent pipeline. I'm Bruno Falcon. And I'm Erin Essenmacher. And this is Future Fluency, the podcast where we explore the changing face of America through the lens of innovation and culture and their impact on business. Brought to you by the National Association of Corporate Directors. We've talked in the past about how certain jobs are more likely to disappear as AI and automation become increasingly prevalent. And while it seems no industry is immune, we won't all feel the impact equally. This was really crystallized for me when I read a study that McKinsey published last October called The Future of Work in Black America, which analyzed the impact of automation on African-American communities. Given some of what we know about structural inequality and how it has impacted economic mobility for many people of color, it was upsetting but not surprising to learn that black Americans are significantly overrepresented in careers that are vulnerable to automation, like food service, office support, and repetitive mechanical jobs. To find out more, I sat down with Shelley Stewart, a partner at McKinsey and co-author of the article. He explained that the way that automation could disproportionately impact black Americans is rooted in age-old issues of structural inequality. Uh, one of the core things that people always remember when we talk about this work is this figure of African-American families have one-tenth the network of white families. And so that's, that's in some ways our, our framing problem that we're trying to then go uh, address. You may say, well, you know, that's, you know that's, that's where we are today. How does it look from a historical perspective? What about upward mobility? We recognize that some of the systemic issues have been addressed, and so is it getting better? And what we find actually is you know, a pretty depressing stat from my perspective, which is that 70% of black children uh, who are born middle class, by the time they're kind of in their 30s, will actually end up poorer as adults. And that's unique to African Americans. I think the most important thing to understand is that the issue is you know, complex and it's a, there's a set of interdependent things that occur in the life of you know, an African American individual and family that all kind of add up to this cumulative gap. And I mean, if you think about being in some ways forced to live in certain neighborhoods um, it has a, a knock-on effect. You end up with highly concentrated poverty, which spills over into 
you know, the types of education students are receiving, you know, very, very high percentage of, disproportionately high percentage of African-Americans are in, you know, high poverty schools, for example. I think there are other things that happen, like just the appreciation and the value of your home you know, climbs at a slower rate because of that. The amount of disposable income to support businesses in these areas is low. So there's a, a big knock-on effect of that. And so we definitely see, um, when we look at it uh, from a geographical perspective, if we just look at kind of representative uh, you know, portion of the population, African-Americans are typically overrepresented in uh, many of the slower growing um, parts of the country. And so it's it's the reverse of upward mobility, frankly, if you're an African-American, you actually tend to see significantly more downward mobility. And so again, this gets back to you know the nature of the problem and the potential alarming trajectory from an already soft starting point. The, the important thing to realize is that the stakes for the economy are huge. We did some work looking at African-Americans and the overall wealth gap, and we did some modeling to get a sense for the dampening effect of, frankly, African-Americans lagging the rest of the country so much in terms of, um, in terms of wealth. And we found that if, if African-Americans could close the wealth gap over the next 10 years, that could add a trillion and a half dollars to GDP. Now, that's a reoccurring value by the time we get to the 10th year. That's very, very meaningful. And the stakes are high to get this automation thing right for everyone, because if we don't, there is real risk that it has a substantial dampening effect on, on the overall economy. Wow, those are big numbers. And it makes clear why closing the wealth gap is not just about righting historical wrongs. It's very much about fostering a thriving present-day economy. Exactly, which is what makes this research on the possibility that AI could exacerbate that wealth gap so concerning. You know, there are a number of uh, uh, industries that have very high displacement rates. I'm talking, you know, 30 to 40 percent, which is which is pretty staggering figure. Um, you know, office support, food services, some of the production work like machinists and truck drivers, and in all of those that I mentioned, African Americans are overrepresented. Now when you go to the places that have less disruptions, now we're talking more 10 to 15 percent uh, displacement rate. Uh, you things like you know being educators and workforce trainers, uh, creative uh, creatives in arts management, health professionals, uh, computer programmers. Again, on that list, African Americans are underrepresented in all of those. And so you know if you just kind of rack and stack the starting point, if you don't do something, dramatic relatively quickly this 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 place that we are today which no one's happy with will potentially be at a point that you know a point of no return is my personal opinion Bruno Shelley's observations about the cumulative effects of structural inequality remind me of Ashley's conversation with Richard Rothstein in our episode The Thin Red Line Our listeners may remember that focused on how discriminatory housing policies in the 1940s created ripple effects in education and earning potential that formed the basis for much of the race-based income inequality that exists today. Right. And we can start to see how these stacking effects, as Shelley calls them, can impact the types of work which are available in these communities. And the McKinsey team dug deeper into how race, gender, and geography could collectively drive this economic displacement. 
certainly the impacts of automation differ at the intersection of things like race, gender, and geography. And so the reason that we push to that level of granularity is in the spirit of trying to identify actual solutions that will work. So what we know, for example, is that young African-American men are at the greatest risk of uh, being displaced from automation. And there's a variety of reasons related to that, um, you know, among them kind of educational attainment levels in that group. If you kind of focus and hone in on these points of intersection, now you're talking about an age group, a gender, a race in a specific place, you can get very granular about your solutions. What we know from other work is that young African-American men are disproportionately represented in slow-growing or declining geographies just by any objective measure. And so I think that that's, I think that that's one area. Uh, but there are, you know, on the reverse side, there are counties that uh, where we expect actually uh, the opposite to be true. Right, so we see, uh, you know, a few places in Texas, you know, Dallas um, and Harris County, uh, 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 Harris County, but around Houston, we see a, a couple places in Florida and North Carolina. There are markets where the reverse is true, where we actually expect net increases um, for for African Americans. So, I mean, there's a there's a couple of things at play, and they're all interrelated. Some of these places are areas that, for a variety of reasons, have become attractive places to live. And so they're just, you know, they're economically outpacing uh, other areas because people are moving there, right? More people, you know, more, you know, you know, more spend, so on. And then with that, there are the, the job creation engine is just stronger there overall. Uh, you know, because people want to live there, therefore companies locate there. And then the third thing is it's the types of industries, right? The composition of industry makeup is one of the most important factors here. So you'd imagine any place that you know, has a bit of a technology uh, hub to it or uh, life sciences and healthcare, industries that we know are well positioned for growth, the places that have a disproportionate you know, amount of those, uh, industry representation of those industries are the ones that are really going to kind of buck the trend. And I think in many of those instances for African-Americans, part of it is just rising tide lifts all boats. But part of it, uh, you know, part of it uh, is also uh, has to do with the education level of you know, African-Americans that live in some of those markets and things like that. In the report, we know which counties and which populations in those counties will be impacted. And so I'd encourage people you know, living in those communities, people who own businesses in those communities, people who are running NGOs, people who um, are working in government in those communities to you know, accept that as an urgent call to action because, you know, we feel quite confident that, that the risk is high. Bruno, we see in this research some of the themes reflected in our other recent episodes, the ways that automation, if not implemented thoughtfully, can have big downside impacts that reverberate across the whole economy. But there's some good news. The McKinsey team isolated some tangible solutions that can help companies across the country, and specifically in black communities, look more like those outlier counties that Shelley just discussed. As we start to think about you know, what, what can we do, you know, when we start to get to the solution space, which I think is the part that, that folks are most excited about, I think there's a number of things that we 
uh, that we teed up. Um, so, for example, you know, historically black colleges and universities, they educate a disproportionate percentage of black college graduates in this country. There are a number of ways to engage at these institutions, whether you do it at the college or university level or you partner with a specific program like the engineering school or the business school. Uh, so I think there's absolutely ample opportunities for corporations, and many do, to engage with these schools with their resources, with their time, hiring people from these institutions, uh, which has a, you know, a feedback effect that may be a bit longer term, but nevertheless important. Uh, I think there's obviously a uh, kind of philanthropic component to it as well when people are thinking about institutions that they want to support that are focused on you know, helping to stop some of these negative trends and remembering that HBCUs are those types of institutions. And by the way, I, I think HBCUs are just one example, uh, but but I think there's a number of ways. And, 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 and I think the point is that because HBCUs educate uh, a disproportionately high percentage of African-Americans, supporting those institutions to make sure that they're able to you know, fully live up to their potential, uh, I think is critically important. Supporting you know, additional you know, associate programs, two-year degrees and certificate programs as well, where you're building you know, hard skills of the future and really making sure that there's you know, robust accessibility to those types of programs is another, is another example. I think there's another piece of this, which is uh, really, uh, if, you know, if you're a local entity that's focused on this, there's some skill matching work that we've done that we think is highly leverageable where you can say, you're in this field today, right? And an example would be a stock clerk. And we've mapped what the different skills are that are required for a stock clerk. That's a high displacement role. There's another role called a team assembler, which is essentially a someone who works in a production team to put together a product, and that person is basically interchangeable at each stage of that product assembly. That has a much lower displacement rate. But what we actually found was that the skills required for both match pretty well. That's pretty granular, and we can be pretty specific then about, okay, for the folks who are stock clerks, how do we start to transition people to other jobs where they can leverage, they may need some additional training to be clear, but they can leverage those foundational skills. So I think that's, that's, that's one example. So because we look at this at a very granular geographical level, we can also deploy in these towns, in these counties where African-Americans will be disproportionately hurt by this because of the underlying dynamics of the economy, right? The types of jobs there and the industries are more susceptible, therefore we can be active about getting into those places before it's too late, uh, that's one. Uh, and then I think there's also a number of you know, NGOs that have a long and storied and rich history of serving these communities, whether it's the Urban League or the NAACP, who are focused on this and doing that work. How do we support those organizations to get increased leverage uh, and, and have more impact with their with their mandate uh, that they have today. Many of these solutions focus on an important process that we've come back to again and again as we've discussed the future of work, reskilling. The same thing that's driving you to learn Python this year. <laughs> exactly. Here's Shelley again. Automation and you know a, lo a lot of the the coming technology around leveraging big data and the internet. 
by the way, that still takes worker. It still takes workers and people with deep, deep knowledge. So it's not like, hey, you know, I'm going to do this automation transformation and then it's just hands off the wheel. So you do still need people that are knowledgeable about the way your business operates to operate in the framework of this new world. And so the companies that don't do the reskilling will certainly fall behind because they won't be able to capitalize on the uh, the benefits of automation. And you know, I think about you know the way uh, just just the the improvements that we see on the way we think about you know analytics in in you know in my in my business and other businesses. I mean we are so far beyond today than we were even ten years ago. You know where you know we're we're going from working in you know, you know, Excel building fairly simplistic models and running, you know, uh, you know, simplistic regressions to hiring data scientists and data engineers who can, you know, take, you know, r- raise that analytical bar to a whole nother level and get to a whole nother level of insight. And so we have to be reskilling across the board uh, if we're going to take advantage of the the benefits of this new technology. If you have a bunch of workers running around, the ones that remain that don't understand the core technologies that we're working with, I think that will be a pretty pretty bad scenario. The other piece Shelley touched on, which keeps coming up in our conversations about the future of work, that concept of learning agility and the idea that we need to fundamentally shift the paradigm of how we think about educating and training our workforce. I think there's another piece though, which is a little bit of a broader cultural discussion. You know, we have we have this very kind of you know linear approach to learning and education. It's like you you go to school when you're young. You know, if you're fortunate, you go to college. You might go to graduate school, and you work. And you work, you learn, but you learn on the job. You very rarely, you know, are, are we talking about kind of mass reskilling of someone that's been working for twenty years? I think we have to embrace this continuous learning mindset given the pace of change right we have to say that's great you now you're you've been you've been a professional for 25 years it's time to learn and i'm not talking about learning how to you know do a different calculation in excel i'm talking we have to be bolder about saying the learning trajectory for a worker starts when they enter the workforce and ends when they retire and not have it be entirely front loaded and, and I think we have to, this is not about, you know, a one module a year training that you do to check a box. I'm, I'm talking about actual reskilling around the areas that are going to be the most meaningful to driving businesses forward in the future. And that idea of driving the business forward and a focus on the future, that gets us squarely into the purview of management and the board. Right. And Shelley talked about this as well focusing on the questions boards should ask as we move towards a machine-augmented future. I don't think there's inherently anything bad about technological advance and productivity improvement. Productivity improvement is one of the things that fuels economic growth. Right? It's just it's very simple. You know, but we have to not we have to not pretend that the impacts on people's lives are not going to be substantial, and we need to proactively, and by that I mean private, public, and social sector, work to create innovative solutions and create new sectors and new roles that pop up as a result 
of innovation and automation. You're starting to see more and more executives and CEOs have exactly this conversation for a variety of things for a variety of reasons. And so I think it starts with having a perspective on what is the impact of it, like actually having the facts and then being open to saying, here's a set of efficiencies that I actually need to do to thrive, to be the best that I can be. I need to embrace the latest technology. Now that I accept that, what is the impact that I expect that to have? And the good news is that because you know we and others have done extensive work on this, we can tell you what that is, right? We can look at the the, the makeup of your, you know, the, the information's out there. You can look at the makeup of a company, understand the technologies that are on the horizon, and get a pretty good estimate of the roles and the order of magnitude of disruption. And so then, so the second, once you've accepted that you need to embrace, you know, these improvements, uh, then you say, and now I recognize that there will be some displacement and disruption. Now then the question becomes, am I willing to sign up? And I think the answer should be yes, to act proactively, uh, because at the end of the day, you know, we, this, this economy is fueled uh, in many ways by consumption and by consumers and by, you know, folks thriving and doing well. So it's also in, bus- in business's interest to be proactive about addressing, uh, you know, any, uh, you know, what I'll call erosion and, and certainly from, from the perspective of, of inequities because businesses operate in some communities that look all a certain way. And you know you can't operate there if no one there is 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 doing is doing well or, or or doing halfway decent. Bruno, as we have heard time and again in our conversations around automation and the future of work, technology is simply a tool. It's up to us humans to ensure it gets implemented in ways that foster smart, sustainable growth. Right. And Shelley shared some great examples of companies who are doing exactly that. I think it's a foregone conclusion that adopting the best-in-class technology is going to happen for leading companies. And so, again, it starts with, I recognize that I'm going to do this, I acknowledge that it's going to create some disruption, and I'm willing to act. And the act is, again, along the dimension of you know a few of the, the things that I mentioned. And you have some companies doing it. Kroger's done some interesting stuff, and JP Morgan's put some investment into reskilling. And I think we should be using and telling those stories. And I think the board plays a big role in, in, in setting that as a, uh, you know, in, in one, in giving, uh, in giving management a, you know, a bit of air cover uh, by, by reinforcing that it is important. And I think the companies that do it will be rewarded. I think being very clear-eyed about the impact at a very granular level on your workers in the community and having a plan for how you will address some of that erosion in a way that is sustainable for the company, of course, but also uh, that recognizes the need to support and address this massive level of disruption. So accept that it's going to happen, that you're going to embrace innovation and technology, but be honest about the potential impact on employees and on communities and be prepared to act. And on one hand, while the data can paint a pretty bleak picture, it also holds the keys to our salvation. Exactly. 
because when data shows us where the problems are, it also shows us where to put in the work. And that can be a powerful tool for competitive, forward-facing, purpose-driven organizations. Bruno, that's why I'm so excited for our next episode. Me too. We're diving into a new series of conversations on purpose and the future of capitalism. Gen Z and millennial populations' expectations are going to shape how we need to manage and be prepared to manage the workforce. They want to work for socially responsible companies. They want a purpose. They want to understand the purpose of the organization they're associated with, and they want to identify with that. So I think the workforce, uh, the human capital part of it that we're used to managing, is changing more drastically and faster than we think they are. And it's all for the good. That's next time on Future Fluency. For guest bios, more resources, and a link to this episode's transcript, check out the show notes or the episode page at nacdonline.org slash podcast. Future Fluency is produced and edited by Bruno Falcon with production support from Carrie Sheehan. Special thanks to Jeanette Woods. Our theme song was composed by Kyle Oppenheimer. Future Fluency is a production of the National Association of Corporate Directors. For more information on NACD or to become a member, please visit nacdonline.org.